Well, good morning. We're, we're now the week after Easter, and what we wanted to do is take a couple weeks right after Easter to talk about the whole idea of the newness that's come about because of the resurrection. That was our theme Easter morning, the idea that we have been made new. We've been given the new birth by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we're gonna take this week and next week to talk about the idea of what does this newness mean and what does it mean for us to live in it? And the thing that's gonna be a little bit different about this service is that the message we're gonna do in three parts. So I'm gonna walk through the first part of it now and then we're gonna have a song and an opportunity to respond with reflection and worship. And then I'm gonna come and do the second part of it and we're gonna respond again with the song and then I'll come and do the third part and we'll respond with the song again. And part of it is just that the themes that we're talking about are so transforming. And they're also themes that really make us think deeply and reflect deeply about how we're even thinking about our lives, that we wanna take these moments to pause, both to praise and also to take in the reality of what it means to be made new. And so the passage is just gonna be two verses. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. And I'll read both verses. I'll kind of take this first segment to introduce the whole concept of what's going on in these verses. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. The apostle Paul writes, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And this is God's word. Because of Christ, we no longer view anyone from a worldly point of view. The first thing that Paul tells us is that our entire perspective of reality is in terms of looking at human beings as either old or new. And it's interesting because this even gets into the idea of how we identify ourselves and how we classify and categorize other people. And and I think most of us are like this, just as we go through the world, if you're walking through a crowded place, which none of us are doing right now, or if you're watching a TV show, or if if you're seeing a whole bunch of different people, we, we sort of have quick ways to classify or categorize those people. And sometimes it's by more peripheral things, things on the surface, so we'll just go by race, right? That person's black, that person's white, that person's Hispanic, that person's Asian, Middle Eastern. We, we just sort of quick fire categorize people by what they look like, by their race. Um, or it could be by what we see about their clothing and what that says about their wealth, right? That person's rich, that person's poor, that person's white collar, that person's blue collar. Of course, we differentiate that that's a man, that's a woman, that person's tall, that person's short, that person's really good looking, that person's not as good looking. Um, and then maybe even as we get to know people, we, we still have ways that we categorize them where we say, all right, that's the funny one, that's the smart one, that's the really deep thinker, that's the academic, that's the athletic one. And then maybe we even go to opinions and political parties. That's a Democrat, that's a Republican, that's an independent, that's part of the Green Party. And then we even get into personalities. That, that's an introvert, that's an extrovert. Um, that, that person's an INTJ, or you get into the whole uh, Enneagram thing, that person's a four, that person's a nine. We have all kinds of ways to categorize ourselves. 
And everything that I just named is a worldly way of looking at others. And, and here's the, I'm not even saying that those category, categorizations are untrue. Sometimes they're true and accurate about the person. But that is a worldly way of categorizing and looking at people around us. We are not identifying the deepest reality of who they are. And one of the things that Paul says in this passage is he says that worldly way of looking at people, that's how we used to view Christ. And he says, we broadly, and I think we could even go back to the Jesus story and recognize this is absolutely true. Jesus was largely, gay, was largely categorized and was largely viewed through worldly eyes. And you know that there's a lot of times you'll see depictions of Jesus and you'll see pictures of Jesus. We, we don't have a lot of information about what Jesus looks like or looked like. Um, but let me tell you one passage that gives us even a hint of what Jesus may have looked like. It's in a prophecy about him in Isaiah chapter 53, and this is verse two. It says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It's not saying here in this prophecy, Jesus was just a repulsive person, but it is saying there, there's nothing especially striking about Jesus as far as his physical appearance. Sometimes you'll watch some of those old films and this Jesus movies and Jesus sort of has this light or this halo around him. And when people see his face, they sort of kind of crunch back a little bit. Jesus was not striking physically. He was easily dismissed physically, which may have been part of the reason why he wasn't readily accepted by people around him. He wasn't even readily accepted by the town he grew up in because they looked at him and said, isn't, isn't that the kid who grew up with us? Isn't that Mary and Joseph's son? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? I mean, just think about it for a second. If during Jesus growing up years, he stood out that much that when he came back and was making grand declarations about himself, they wouldn't have been as shocked, but they said, isn't that just Jesus, the guy we grew up with? Jesus was viewed from a worldly standpoint, and that's part of what went into his rejection. But that's not why we reject him today. That, that, that's not why we hold him at arm's length today because we haven't seen Jesus. But maybe we hold Jesus at arm's length today for another reason and that's because he is a threat. We just this last week celebrated the death and the resurrection of, Cre uh, of Jesus. Nobody is put to death. Nobody is executed because people just feel lukewarm about them. People didn't feel lukewarm about Jesus. They saw him as a threat. The Jewish leaders saw him as a threat to their status. The Roman leaders saw him as a threat to their peace. And if we're gonna look at Jesus rightly, we have to recognize Jesus is a threat to us being autonomous and calling our own shots in our lives. Jesus is the savior, but Jesus also brings demands. Jesus has a high calling for discipleship. So if we're looking at Jesus purely from a worldly standpoint, purely for what is he gonna get me right now, we're gonna hold him at arm's length. But Paul thankfully says, we used to view Jesus that way, we don't any longer. 
because we know what he did for us on the cross. We know about the resurrection. We now know that what was most apparent about Jesus wasn't in the end what was most true about him. Because even though he looked like a normal person, he was the eternal son of God and he saved us. And Paul goes further to say, we don't look at one another this way either. It's not that we don't notice the color of our skin or our personality types or interests or things like that. We still notice those things, but it means that when we're looking at people, that's not how we primarily categorize them in our heads. We don't primarily look at people and say, man, woman, tall, short, black, white, Republican, Democrat. We primarily look at people and say, old or new. And I recognize even saying that that can sound like super judgmental. The idea that we're going around, we're saying new, old, new, old. That, that's not the idea that Paul is saying. He's not saying this in any way that's dismissive of people. They're old and we somehow are elite or we somehow are superior. There was nobody like Paul who desperately wanted people to be made new in Jesus. Him talking about people as old or as lost or as sick or as needy or as condemned, none of that was to cast them away. All of that drove him all the more to show them Christ's love. And so that means for all of us, when we look at those people on our kids' soccer team or that family in our neighborhood and they have plenty of money, they have solid jobs, they're all healthy, the lawn looks immaculate and we look at them and somewhere in our heads we say, those aren't people who desperately need Jesus. They have their lives together. When we say that, we're looking at them from a worldly standpoint. We're not recognizing that no matter how much money we have, no matter how beautiful our lawn is, no matter how healthy our family is, all of us desperately need Jesus. And it also means that we even rethink who we see ourselves associated with. Because you know, it may be that you have that neighbor or you have that friend who's not a Christian and you like the same things, you watch the same movies, you dress very similarly, your houses are laid out in the same way, your kids go to the same school, you have all of these things in common, you laugh at the same jokes you have more in common with the Christian living in Kenya right now who you may never meet. You don't speak the same language. You don't look very much alike. You don't live in houses that are in any way similar and your hobbies are utterly different, but you are bonded forever to that brother or sister in Christ living halfway around the world. Whereas that person that you have all those things in common with all of those things are lowered down on the reality of who we are at our core. You know, we, we all want that identity. We all want to identify ourselves. And sometimes we'll even take subpar things. We'll, we'll take some personality traits, some test that we've been given, move into something. Sometimes we'll want to define ourselves by something like gender identity or sexual orientation. And, and here's the deal. As Christians, it's not even that we look at that idea and we don't believe that people have same-sex temptations or orientations or the idea that people feel this, this sense of maybe, maybe I'm a man, but I feel like I should be a woman and I'm confused about all that. It's not that we say that that's not real. It's that we say none of those things are the most real thing about you. The most real thing about you is where you stand 
in relationship to God. And those of us who have come to faith in Jesus are made new. Our core identity is that we belong to God. And I want to invite you during this next song to take in. You can just stay in your seat. Stay seated. I do invite you. Sing along. Reflect. Worship. And take in the reality about what it says about who you are because of what Jesus has done for you. lost but he brought me with his love for me his love for me who the sun sets free oh is free indeed I'm a child of God yes I Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Who the sun sets free. Oh, it's free and deep. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place. like that nothing can compare to the promises that we have in Christ Jesus 
And just as we sing this bridge again together this morning, I want us to focus on the freedom that we have in these lyrics. They are true. They are true about you, that if you have Jesus living inside of you, nothing can separate you from that love. You are chosen, forgiven. Man, we praise him this morning. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for the hope we have in you. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Come on, prophesy. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say. Declare it. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say. I am. You are for me, not against me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. So let's talk about that old that's gone. And the old that is gone, it's both objective and experiential. What I mean is the fact that the old is gone is both just an established fact, an established reality but it also is an ongoing experience, something more subjective that we live in. So let, let's just start with the objective part about what is true, whether we feel that way or not. The old being gone means that our sins are all forgiven. Our guilt is all gone. Just a couple verses after the verse that we read, Paul is talking about the gospel and what has happened in the gospel. And here's what he says in verse 19 of this passage. He says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, our sins aren't counted against us. That is just a reality. By faith in Jesus, we are forgiven, we're made clean. We were old, we're now new. We were lost, we're now found. We were condemned, we're now saved. We were aliens and strangers, we're now friends. We were orphans, we're now adopted. We were condemned convicts, we're now set free. 
These are the realities of the gospel. This is why we celebrate even on a dark day like Good Friday. This is why in the resurrection we celebrate that we have new birth. The old is gone. All that sin and shame of our past is taken away and we have new status before the God of the universe. That's an objective reality. The old is gone. But we know that for many of us, we hear that and we say, it doesn't feel like the old is gone. And maybe we say that because we still deal with guilt and shame. And so we don't necessarily feel like we're people who have been forgiven and set free. Or maybe we're saying that just because we're living in the reality of saying, I I still feel like I struggle with a lot of the same things that I struggle with. I still feel like I fail nearly, if not just as much as I used to fail. I still feel like I fall short and I still feel shame, not only over things that I've done in the past, but over things that I continue to do. I don't feel new, I still feel old. And the reality is that we can still feel that way. Our experience can still be very much an old experience even when the old is gone. You can be that orphan and all the papers were signed, all the adoption went through legally. You officially are no longer an orphan. You are brought into the family, but you can still live in the constant reality and the constant fear that you're about to be farmed out or kicked out of that family because you don't really belong. You can be a slave who's been completely redeemed. The slave price has been paid and you are now free, but you can still live in the reality of viewing yourself as a slave and not taking advantage of your freedom. You can be that condemned criminal who has the charges all erased, but still returns to that prison cell night after night because you still feel condemned. We need to start just with the reality of recognizing we are made new. And I just want to say right now, if you're listening to this and you say, I don't feel like I deserve forgiveness, I want to tell you, first of all, you're right. You don't deserve forgiveness. Jesus didn't do this based on what we deserve. It says right here in the passage, God decided not to count our sins against us. That doesn't mean that's what we deserved. That means it's the exact opposite. Jesus took the penalty that we deserved. If you're saying, I don't feel like I deserve this, you're right, you don't deserve this. But you feeling that way doesn't make it untrue. Enjoy the grace that has been given to you to make you new. Decide to embrace by faith the reality that you're no longer an orphan you're adopted forever into the family of God. You're no longer a slave. You've been redeemed and set free into a new life. You're no longer the convicted criminal. Instead, you have been pardoned forever. And not only are we told that on an objective level, this is true, we're also told that there's a newness that comes on the experiential level. There's an oldness that goes away on the experiential level. Not only are we set free from the penalty of our sins that they aren't counted against us, we're told that we're also set free from the power of sin, which doesn't mean that it's no longer a battle and it doesn't mean that we no longer have failures 
but it means that sin doesn't rule over us in the same way that it used to be. I, I want to read you the opening verses out of Romans chapter 6, verse, uh, verses uh, 1 and 2, because it gets into this idea. He begins, Paul begins this chapter by saying, what shall we then say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, Paul is saying the question, because we've been forgiven, should we just keep sinning like we used to? And I think for most of us instinctively, what we want to say is, no, that would be a terrible way to respond to all God's goodness. No, that would be terribly ungrateful for us to do. That's not what Paul says. What Paul says in verse two is, no, by no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In other words, Paul's response to, should we just sin like we used to before we were Christians, isn't, no, that would be terribly ungrateful of you. It's no, because you're made new because you're dead to sin and you're now alive to God. The old has gone in a practical way also. Sin no longer has power over you. It doesn't mean sin has no influence at all, but it means sin does not have power over you. You're not a slave like you used to be. In Galatians chapter five, verse 16, Paul says, if we live by the spirit, if we walk by the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, here's what I want to say. There is great hope for victory. The old has gone. And if you're listening to this, I I know that there's a great temptation and there's a great instinct in many of us to just start feeling bad and to say, I still feel like I'm old. I still feel like I haven't started to live in that newness. And so we start to feel guilty about this. And, And what I want to say is, you know, guilt when it comes, guilt is a means to an end. Sometimes guilt is appropriate, but not as just an ongoing state. We feel guilt. It's almost like touching a hot pot and realizing it's hot. We feel guilt to indicate that something's wrong, but God doesn't intend for us to stay in a perpetual state of guilt. The guilt points us towards the reality. And what I want to give you is less of a scolding and more of an invitation. The old has gone. You're set free and forgiven. And also the old has gone. Sin is no longer your master. You have the invitation to live in a new reality, to walk by faith in a new reality. And we know that growing in this way, man, it it takes discipline and it takes focus and it takes one another. It takes the new family that we've been given and, and not slipping into the old habits. It takes ongoing reading God's word and it takes prayer and it takes repentance. It takes all of these things. But what I want to say even in all of this is that maybe the place where it starts is that by faith we embrace the the objective reality that we sometimes have trouble believing. The objective reality that the old has gone if you're a believer in Jesus. You're no longer that orphan fighting for your place in the family. You're no longer that slave just desperately trying to get by. You're no longer that condemned criminal just waiting for the ax to fall. You are new in Christ. And you know, I think for most of us, when we begin to experience the beauty and the pleasure of the fact that we are now walking in fellowship with God, 
then the fight against sin and the fight to get rid of the oldness becomes much less of a burden and much more as an invitation to new life. So as we prepare to respond again in song, I want to invite you again, just continue sitting, prayerfully take in these powerful words about what God has done to take care of the old and invite us into the new. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my who sees us from my mother's womb you have chosen me love has called my name and I've been born again into your family your blood flows through
The old is gone, the new is here. And here's what I want to say about the newness that's talked about in this passage. The new is here. The new is much more than just the absence of the old. Newness in Christ has less to do with absence and more to do with presence. And I say that just because I think there's a temptation for us only to identify the newness with what's no longer there. The old is that we used to sin a lot. The new is that we don't sin as much. The old is that we used to have a lot of guilt and shame. The new is that we just don't have that guilt and shame anymore. The old is that we used to experience a lot of slavery. And the new is that we don't experience that slavery. Sometimes we can look at the new and we can miss part of the beauty of it because we only identify it with the absence of the old, but the newness in Christ is not just about absence. First and foremost, it's about presence. It's about the idea that this passage brings out that we have been reconciled to God. In fact, the apostle Paul refers to the gospel as the message of reconciliation. First and foremost, we get to live in the reality that yes, we're no longer orphans, Now we're sons and daughters. That's the new reality. 
And, and any way that we understand the gospel, if we're talking about forgiveness, if we're talking about redemption, if we're talking about adoption, we need to make sure we're understanding this whole purpose of God forgiving us is not just to forgive us and send us on our way, but to forgive us so that we would be reconciled to him, so that we would be walking in the comfort and the beauty of fellowship with God. We have been reconciled to God because he didn't count our sins against us. We now live in the reality that God is for us. We live in the reality that God is working all things together for our good, which is going to culminate in us being conformed to the image of Jesus and experiencing eternal life with the God who created us. God is for us. God is with us. And that's the new reality that we live in. And just think a second about the freedom that you get to experience in that newness. I don't know if any of you have ever tried out for a sports team before, um, but man, if, if you've gone through sort of the tryout process, it can be a stressful time. You feel like you're under a microscope and everything that you're doing is being watched. And so if you mess up in any way, you're sort of looking around saying, gosh, I hope that nobody saw that. And if you do mess up and somebody did see it and they comment on it, a lot of times there's a big temptation just to blame it on someone else. Well, I didn't drop that. That was a bad pass. I didn't miss that. That was your fault. Bad communication. And you're desperately defensive because you're fighting for a spot on the team and you feel that deep insecurity that you don't yet belong. But once you make the team, once you're welcomed onto the team and you're secure in that spot, everything changes. Suddenly you're able to look at your teammates, not as competitors with you, but as partners with you. Suddenly if you mess up, you're not desperately terrified you're able to say, gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm going to work on that. I want to help the team. I want to be better with that. Suddenly, when people notice and comment on the fact that you made a mistake, instead of blaming somebody else, you're able to collaborate with your teammates because you feel secure on your spot on the team. You belong. You've gone from auditioning to belonging. And man, what a beautiful reality that the gospel message is not that we are all auditioning for God, hoping that at some point he brings us in. We belong forever. That's the new reality that we live in. That's the peace that we have. That when we do screw up, when we do sin, when we do fall back into old patterns, we don't have to respond by looking around and hoping that nobody noticed. And we don't have to respond by blaming somebody else for it. We can fully go to God. As Hebrews chapter four says, we can boldly go before the throne of grace and say, yeah, God, that was me. I did that. I still need mercy. I still need grace. I still need help. This is me, your child who belongs to you, calling out to you for those things. What a new reality to live in. The old has gone. The guilt and the shame and the condemnation. The new is here. The belonging and the freedom. And there's a lot to talk about with this newness, but, but let me just talk about three things that come out of this newness. Um, and they're all related to the Holy Spirit. 
One of the biggest new things that happens to us when we come to faith in Jesus is that we are given the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans chapter eight, verse nine says, that anyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit doesn't belong to Christ. We're given the Holy Spirit as a promise of our future adoption. And we're also given the Holy Spirit as God's presence and empowering for us now. So because we have the Holy Spirit, something that we have new is that we have new courage. We suddenly have new boldness. Instead of looking at the idea that we are ambassadors of Christ, that we carry his message to the world and looking at at that as a deep burden that we face with terror, we're set free to have new courage. In fact, if you look in the book of Acts, you see the idea of the Holy Spirit bringing boldness and bringing courage to the apostles. We suddenly can walk in boldness when we're talking about Jesus. We suddenly can walk in boldness when we're even talking to our brothers and sisters in Christ and talking to them about things that we see that they need to grow in. We have boldness when we talk about our own sins and failures because we know about our place in the family of God. We have boldness when we continue to hold strong to our convictions of what God has said, even when it's highly unpopular in our culture. We have new courage because ultimately we know there's only one opinion that really counts. There's only one person's approval that we really need and we belong to him forever. We have new courage. Not only do we have new courage, but we also have new gifts through the Holy Spirit. This passage we've been going through is in 2 Corinthians. Let me read you a few verses out of 1 Corinthians. It talks about what the Holy Spirit has done for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses four through seven. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. And now verse seven. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. And that's why we we frequently said at Life Bible Fellowship Church, your spiritual gift doesn't belong to you. Your spiritual gift is given to you by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but it belongs to the people of God. It belongs to the church. And one of the reasons I want to highlight this is because man, right now we're living in this weird time where we're isolated from one another, where we're quarantined. And it can be easy to look at this time and say, man, if only this wasn't going on, I would be using my gift. I would be going around encouraging people like God's gifted me to do. If only this wasn't going on, I would be using my musical gift or my gift with, with, with the children and my ability to teach them well. I, I'd be using my gift of helps or administration or leadership if only then I would be doing this. And the fact is, whether we're on a quarantine or not, all of us can do that in our lives. We can say, well, well, if I just had the job that would free me up to do this. If I just didn't have this health problem in my life, I would use my gift. If I just didn't have these different limitations, if I was just through school, if I was just in a more stable place in my relationships, then I'd start using my gifts. Here's what I wanna say. God has given you a gift. It's part of what it means to be new. That gift belongs to the body of Christ. And even during this time where we're limited in so much we can do, all of us as believers should be looking at what it looks like to live in that newness. How can we use the gift of encouragement even when we rarely get to see each other face to face? How can we use the gift of helps when we're in our houses most of the time? How can we use gifts like teaching and encouragement and exhortation 
and leadership, even when we're isolated from each other. God has made us new. That means a new courage. That also means a new gifting that directs our life. Our primary calling isn't even the jobs that we have. Our primary calling is to use these new gifts that we've been given to build up the body of Christ and to shine the light of Jesus to the world. And one more thing that's made new is our hope. Our hope is made new in this way. Hope is not about crossing your fingers and just wishing something will happen. Hope is about the confident expectation that better days are ahead. And you know what? If you don't have hope in the God of the universe, that's a tenuous way to live because your hope has got to be in something. Your hope has got to be in your own brains or in your own skills. Your hope has got to be in the government or in something that's going to happen that's going to make better days in the future. We have hope that the best days are ahead. That even if our bodies are breaking down and dying, our best days are ahead. Because we believe that since Jesus was raised from the dead, all who belong to him will be raised also. We live in a new hope that emboldens us, a new hope that gives us peace, and a new hope that allows us to shine the light of the gospel to the world, even during dark times, like what we're going through right now. And I already said, the fact that we view people not from a worldly standpoint, that that's an act of faith, that we believe the most true thing about this person is whether they're new in Christ or whether they're still lost. That's an act of faith. And if we're going to live in the reality that the old is gone, a big part of that is also an act of faith because we still have this reality that we're living with. We still often feel like slaves to sin. We're still tempted to think that the old has sway over us. And if we're going to live in this newness, if we're going to live as reconciled children of God, if we are going to experience the new boldness and the new gifting and the new hope, It's going to be through faith. It's going to be through us absolutely depending on God and trusting him to come through. It's all about us believing that the most true thing about others and the most true thing about us is not what's seen on the surface, but on the idea that God has made us new in Christ Jesus. As we think about how we respond in faith, We are going to have one last song. And for this one, I'm actually going to invite you to stand to take this in. Because this is a song not only about remembering God's blessing with us, but by thinking with hope about the way that God will work in us and work through us. So let's respond in faith, in worship, and in celebration and in anticipation of not only what God has done, but what he will do as we live in this new reality. face shine upon 
encourage you right now maybe just to lift your hands it might feel awkward but just where you're sitting or standing lift up your hands open in a posture to receive from the Lord as we sing this bridge together that his favor be upon us as we wait on him we trust him believing that he is faithful he is good he is for us and all of his promises are yes and amen. So we wait on you now, Jesus. We trust you in this time. Yes, Lord. May his favor be upon you and a thousand generations in your family, in your children, in their children, in their children. May his favor be upon you and a thousand generations in your family, in your children, in their children, their children. May His favor be upon you and a thousand generations in your family, in your children, in your children, in their children. May His favor be upon you. Side you 
That's our prayer as we leave this place today that you would be encouraged in the new identity that you have in Christ, that you would claim that promise over your life today. That what Jesus has done for us is once and for all. He's taken the old, it is now gone, it is finished. His word says, as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he's taken our sin from us. We trust his dying on the cross has forgiven us all our sin. And then we take our place in the newness of life when he rose from the grave victoriously. So with that in mind, we leave rejoicing and celebrating that the victory is ours because of King Jesus. Guys, I pray that you would be blessed this week as you leave, as we finish this service together. Thanks and be blessed.